I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Alan Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain. And I am your host, Mary Wilkerson. We are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome and thanks so much for joining us once again. It's great to be back. Thank you. Wonderful. I'm glad you both show up every month. That's really a wonderful. <laughs> Listen, lesson. it was a little cold driving in this morning. I'm not oh, going to lie. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thank you for showing up as well, Archbishop. It's always great to sit with you and, and chat and have good conversations. So how, how was your last month? How have you been? It, it's been a good month. Uh, you know, it continues to be strange. Uh, we're coming up to a point, uh, we were just calculating uh, this at supper the other night, uh, it's going to be a whole year pretty soon oh, that we've great. been really intensively dealing with uh, the, the, um, the virus, mm -hmm. but uh, I, th it, it, I think uh, we have found many graces in it, and that's what has occurred to me in this past month. Plus, I got my first that. shot, so I'm... Oh. I saw that, but you haven't got the second yet, because I heard the nope. second can be a little bit of a, a journey, so... I heard that. Coming yeah. up. <laughs> All right. It's, it's interesting that you said that. I think Mike was just going to share. We had a meeting prior to this podcast, and we were talking about that same thing, that it's Lent almost signifies to me like a, a year since we've been in the reality of a pandemic, and there's been so many crosses, but also... God has made himself so known in so many different ways, you know? Mm -hmm. Yes, so, indeed. Beautiful. Archbishop, does, uh, how, how did you do with that first dose? Did you, you feel okay? It was fine. It was just okay. like any other shot. Good, good. I had a buddy who got his first shot, and he, he felt like it hit him pretty hard, even the first one. So I'm glad to hear you did all right with it. Yeah. It's neat to kind of take a, a moment of reflection, I think, about this this year moving into Lent and, and the hope that's on the horizon and the hope that's been present the whole time. And I've said this before on the podcast, but uh, you've done such a good job reminding us of the movements of the Spirit and of God and this time ordained by Him to show us who He is and how much He loves. And um, I think taking a moment to reflect is good. Amen. So. We get to talk today about uh, an important topic, an awesome topic, something that's so near and dear to the heart of the church and all of humanity, really, which is the dignity of life. So starting this conversation, I want to ask a simple question that might have a complex answer. What does the church mean when it refers to the inherent dignity of all people? I suppose we simply begin uh, from the revelation itself that uh, we are made in God's image and likeness. <clears throat> this is uh, right at the very beginning of the sacred scripture, uh, that uh, we have a capacity to uh, do many of the things that God himself can do. Uh, we can uh, know and we can will. We're free. Uh, and so each human being has this profound dignity and we know by faith even more wondrously we have the call to participate in God's own life. Uh, you don't have to have faith to know that every human being has dignity. That's something that uh, is uh, available to any thoughtful person uh, to look at human beings and to see that we're not 
an, uh, a means. I think that's one more way to talk about human dignity. Nobody is uh, expendable. Uh, nobody is uh, uh, to be used for one's own purposes. But each person ha has a, a, an end, a goal, uh, that has an integrity for itself. I know it's a little philosophical, but I, I think there, it's about freedom. Yeah. And we have the dignity of being free because we have the dignity of recognizing what's truly good. Mm. We're not uh, beasts uh, right. uh, controlled by, uh, by our appetites. I think of that scripture in Genesis right in the beginning that says that, you know, we're created in the image and likeness of God, that each person bears the image of God. It's, it's quite a profound thing when you take some time to meditate on that, that um, the very breath of God is in each of us, right? Yes, and we need to treat one another that way and recognize that about one another. Mm. Uh, we're not uh, simple. You know, I think one of the profound ways uh, our Holy Father gets at this is when he talks about the throwaway culture. Mm. Uh, that uh, in a throwaway culture, people can be treated uh, like baggies or uh, uh, paper towels, you know. You yeah. use them and you dispose of them. Yeah. I mean, nobody should be like that. And when you look at people, I think, too, in the image and likeness of God, it shifts the way that you treat the people around you. I know I've done different exercises before where... You know the people that are that just drive us nuts sometimes, or the the groups of people that we struggle with. That when we consider the fact that they are made in the image and likeness of God, it can shift the way we respond to them in love. Like it's such a key part of loving those around us is understanding how tied to God's image they are. Right, and and our faith gives us uh, so much a richer perspective, uh, so that when you you. Uh, uh, understand that this uh, other person who perhaps annoys me and mm -hmm. no reason to deny that uh, he or she d annoys me right. but that God loves this person and I should uh, I, I'm invited to uh, join with God in loving this person and there's every good chance that uh, God willing this is going to be the person who lives in the house next to me in the <laughs> eternal mansion right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it can shift uncharitable thoughts right away when you take that moment to really reflect on that and and another perspective that it deeply enriches what we could know by nature is that Jesus died for this person mm. this person uh, every everybody I meet uh, Jesus judged that this if, if this were the only person in the world, he would have been willing to die for this person. Oh. I know a number of years ago that kind of became an internal prayer when I was uh, speaking or dealing with anyone that's kind of frustrating or annoying. It's uh, just a simple line like, Lord, help me to see them as you see them. Help me to love them as you love them. And um, that definitely helps, just that prayer and the dependency on God to, to see that dignity in the person even when they don't really... Uh, per se act or show <laughs> that kind of dignity, you know what I mean? And we all deal with that all the time, right? So, Archbishop, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question to that. Um, uh, what are some of the issues that fall under the Church's teaching on human dignity? I know there's a number of them. I was wondering if you could kind of just list some of them and uh, make us aware. Well, the most preeminent one in our culture today is abortion, which is where, like, the most innocent among us are treated uh, 
as part of the throwaway culture, but it's not the only one. Uh, racism is certainly a terrible uh, offense against the dignity of the human person. Uh, the way we treat uh, uh, people who are immigrants, strangers among us, uh, whether they come with or without documents. Uh, the death penalty is a particularly uh, uh, a particular uh, point for us to try and understand the dignity of the human person. Uh, to uh, we, Saint John Paul, uh, Pope Francis, have pointed out that while uh, in a very abstract way uh, there is a. a a legitimacy for capital punishment in our time in this place where we need to protect the dignity of the human person uh, we have to avoid uh, capital punishment uh, euthanasia is a terrible form of uh, uh, in insulting the dignity of a human person treating somebody like a means somebody as if she or he is an obstacle getting in the way of uh, our flourishing and not to be treasured uh, even in poverty can be an issue that uh, uh, if, if we don't uh, deal with poverty uh, and, and try to help people uh, advance out of their poverty, uh, that's a, a problem in not recognizing their dignity. And uh, we need to protect the environment in order to respect the dignity of one another because Earth as Pope Francis says, Earth is our common home, and uh, I shouldn't mess up the house for you if I respect you. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. So I guess what does the Church mean when it says it's pro-life regarding any of these issues? Well, uh, that the Church respects the human dignity and understands that, the, that life is a gift from God uh, and uh, not a commodity to be used uh, either by my own self or to be abused by uh, by others. My life is not uh, is it has a purpose and an end in itself. I don't exist for the sake of helping somebody else uh, uh, achieve uh, their goals and purposes. Now we can work together to achieve goals and purposes, but uh, nobody can be just a, a, just an instrument, just a means. Uh, but. Today, of course, given the uh, laws, the regime in the United States, uh, we uh, being opposed to the legalization of abortion is the preeminent uh, matter for uh, trying to maintain the dignity of the human person. You know, it's interesting that you referenced um, the Holy Father talking about the throwaway culture and then the the list that you just gave of you know racism and issues of immigration the death penalty euthanasia poverty environmental crisis this seems to be all the issues right now as a as a country as a nation maybe even globally that we're really struggling with right these are the the four, these are the headlines every single week are these issues that are uh, laid before us and I wonder if perhaps, Part of the reason this is such a point of tension, these issues, is that we have become in so many ways a throwaway culture and kind of disconnected from our identity. As people of God, do you see that as a tension? Do you think this has always been the struggle? Do you think it's unique to today? Um, how do you think it's tied to kind of the cultural moment that we're at? Well, I think uh, it's always been the problem with sin and virtue. 
-hmm. is uh, to change the uh, the center of one's life. I mean, every sin is uh, an act by which I make myself the center of my universe. Mm -hmm. I think uh, in each culture, each civilization, it takes on a, a different guise, a different incarnation. As I look at our culture, uh, we are very much about uh, a consumerist culture, mm -hmm. uh, producing a lot of uh, goods that seem to satisfy our human needs. Yeah. And uh, we, we put a very high priority on the latest this, the latest that, the most convenient thing, uh, the uh, handy-dandy uh, grill that uh, eliminates fat. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, we, this is very much, uh, it, it's, it's just part of the atmosphere of, of our thinking. Yeah. Uh, about uh, goods that relieve us from uh, inconvenience. Mm -hmm. And we don't like, we've, we're very impatient with uh, being inconvenienced. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we find it difficult to stop, to pause, to enjoy, uh, and, and simply to, to bask in the moment. And I think that kind of attitude makes it all the easier to treat people like instruments, to treat them uh, as if G God put them in the world in order to make uh, my life uh, more pleasant. You know, so many people today, like Mary was saying, um, there, there's obviously some areas, many areas of agreement where the church uh, promotes the human dignity on some of these issues, you know, especially like environmental things and racism. Others, and in other areas, people say they have a right uh, to things such as abortion or euthanasia, you know, um, and we shouldn't infringe upon those rights. How, how should we, uh, as Catholics, respond to those assertions? You know, what, what are the best things that we're, the best things that we can practically do as Catholics to assist in this area of dignity? Well, I mean, we can do two things, can't we, Mike? Uh, we can uh, make our case and stand up and say what's the truth, and we can also give an example where we treat people with uh, uh, respect and, and, uh, and, and show their dignity, treat them with dignity, and that's got its own power, the power of witness, the, mm. the beauty of that. Uh, I think we have to do both of those things, make our case and uh, give our witness. And the case, part of the case is we're going to have, we have to help people think better about what, what, me, what it means to say somebody's got a right. Uh, if you have a right, you have a duty. Rights mm. and duties go together. Uh, isn't that probably something that parents uh, work really hard at treating, uh, teaching their children? Uh, and uh, if you have a right uh, to, uh, as a human being, to be free, you have a duty to exercise that right virtuously, and there's no virtue in treating somebody like, uh, like a baggie or a paper towel. With so many of these issues, they just... I don't know, they can all seem overwhelming, right? The amount of woundedness or areas that we as Catholics are called to, our faith calls us to speak into them. Do you have 
have any suggestions of how we discern where God wants us to use our voice. So when I look at, at again, the list that you just named, you know, racism, immigration, death penalty, euthanasia, poverty, it just sometimes can seem so overwhelming. So the power of prayer and the power of our witness is important, but how do we determine where God wants us to kind of act or, you know, in a specific way, address different things? Before I answer that, let, can I say something that occurred to me as you were talking? Sure. Uh, about the sense of being overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we we become part of, some people call it a movement, uh, a mm -hmm. reality, the church, that began with, uh, uh, in, in Jerusalem with, I don't know, maybe how many there were in the upper room that day. There weren't very many. Mm -hmm. And they were gathered around Our Lady and the Twelve. And Jesus had told them, go out and make disciples of the whole world. And you could almost imagine them saying, are you talking to us? I mean, <laughs> this is the Roman Empire. <laughs> right. And we're just this little group. So um, we, we have to embrace that. Uh, the, it's the parable of the leaven, the yeah. parable of the mustard seed. Uh, how do we discern? St. Thomas says that while we have an obligation, we're called to universal charity, uh, the uh, obligation exists in, in concentric circles. And we have the first obligation to those who are closest to us in community in that circle. So uh, what do you need to do, husband and wife, to encourage one another to respect human dignity? Mm -hmm. uh, what's going on in your neighborhood? Uh, mm -hmm. you, you can't do everything, obviously. And in fact, if you tried to do everything, that would be uh, really to mistake what God wants. Uh, you already sent the Messiah, uh, Mike. You're not the Messiah. Oh. I, I hope that's not disappointing to you. I have to tell him that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what, what's right now? Uh, What's close at hand? Uh, what's going on in my country? Uh, what can I uh, reasonably hope to accomplish? When I pray, uh, what do I feel particularly called to, uh, to respond to? Always recognizing that somebody else is going to be called a bit differently and, and to let those other people have space for what they're called to do. Mm. But nobody can deny the importance. So. If, uh, say, someone is very, very dedicated to um, protecting uh, the right of parents to educate their children according to their, uh, according to their dignity, that doesn't uh, give anybody a buy or, or say they can ignore uh, something like abortion because abortion does have a preeminent importance. Nobody can be neutral about that. But I, prayer is very important, and discernment, to look around and, and see uh, what's close to hand and what, what might the Holy Spirit ask me to be doing. Not everybody can do, I just saw this on our website, not everybody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Right. Yeah. That's really helpful, too, to think I... Uh, 
well, I'll just say, I sometimes get overwhelmed by the brokenness in the world and where God wants me to be present in that and to even unite to the cloud of witnesses to, like you said, the apostles in the upper room and uh, the emotion of feeling like, oh, there's so much, <laughs> but the confidence that the Holy Spirit will give us the ability and the direction. So that's going to be a good little prayer moment for me, I think. And, and not to overcomplicate it, but, you know, St. Ignatius Loyola distills some long-standing uh, wisdom of the saints that uh, for people who are committed to a life of virtue and holiness, discipleship, the devil doesn't usually uh, give very gross temptations to mm. the worst kinds of sin. Mm. He attacks us uh, where we're strong. Uh, he, he discourages us. Mm. Oh, you, you can't uh, change this or that, so just don't bother. Right. And so the good we might do we, we don't take up because we can't do everything. Right. Yeah, good He's stuff. He's very so, smart, the evil I'm telling one. you, that St. Michael prayer, whew, thank goodness for it. Um, you've mentioned a couple times the word preeminent. And ahead of the 2020 election, and in a letter from uh, and in a letter from the Archbishop to President Biden during his inauguration, the U.S. bishops affirmed that of these issues, abortion is the preeminent issue. This caused a little bit of a stir in some corners, with people understandably quick to highlight all these other issues that we've talked about, worthy issues to protect human dignity. And so sometimes I think we have a hard time understanding what that word preeminent means and what that calls us to. Um, does it mean the other things aren't as important? How would you explain that in a way that can be easily understood and maybe the least bit controversial? Well, <laughs> Not I don't know if I can like, get the non-controversial <laughs> part. I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> but uh, it, it has to do, first of all, preeminent in the sense uh, that uh, you can never do uh, a bad thing to accomplish a good thing. Hmm. It's just not possible. If you do something bad to, to try and do something good, you make it bad. Mm. And abortion is always bad. Mm. There, there is never uh, a reason that turns this into something good in itself. I think that's part of what we, we understand. Mm. And I think it's preeminent because it touches um, the most foundational uh, element of human dignity, the protection of innocent life. And here we're talking about the most innocent mm -hmm. and the most defenseless of human lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that helps, that contributes to the preeminence. It also uh, inserts in a, uh, what we might call a sanctuary, a sacred space where human dignity ought to flourish within the family, and especially in the privileged relationship between a mother and a father and their child, it introduces a, a terrible disruption, a, a terrible virus into something that should be the most inoculated against this virus of uh, abuse and the throwaway culture. So I think, I think uh, it, it's an attack on the sanctuary of the family. Mm. And uh, 
it enshrines in our legal system this virus that uh, has no place in the system. And once it's unleashed, it will, and it is already uh, mm. corrupting other elements of uh, the legal system, which needs to be based on the natural moral law of protecting the rights of human beings and uh, uh, serving the cause of justice. Right. Would it be fair to say that to understanding the necessity of protecting innocent life helps us to understand uh, other areas of human dignity? Like if, if we can't uh, get it right in life in its most innocent form, some of these issues that people find more complicated become even further difficult to understand. I think you're right. It, yeah. uh, that's what I'm... I, I hope my analogy about a virus is, mm -hmm. is uh, helpful here. You let this virus go, and it's not just going to stop on this issue of abortion. It's going to uh, have a, a corrosive uh, uh, if effect on, on so many other areas of life. It already <clears throat> is corrosive in the relationship between uh, uh, doctors and their patients. Mm -hmm. It... Uh, Patients uh, can, if this gets into the, once this is in the medical system, then doctors uh, are given, uh, there's sort of a message given that their job is not to protect human life and, and human health, but to uh, make things more convenient for people. Right. That makes sense. And within our, I like that you pointed out too, within our legal system, kind of uh, imagining it as a virus and something that affects all other things if we allow for and codify the uh, right to end an innocent life. It, it shifts our ability to effectively and morally and ethically operate as a country, right? Right, because then the legal system is seen as uh, simply an instrument of power mm -hmm. uh, to... Uh, be structured in such a way as it uh, uh, makes things convenient for the for the majority or for whoever has the power. You know, sticking with the abortion uh, issue just for a moment. I know last month, obviously in January, we had the March for Life, and like so many other events this year, it was a virtual. Um, did you happen to see any of the or, or participate in any of the virtual uh, way this uh, this year, Archbishop? My uh, participation was pretty limited, Mike. I, I, my recollection is seeing uh, the, some elements about young people continuing to do what they could to give their witness to life. And I think the uh, witness of uh, teenagers and young adults is really very, very powerful. I know I know. whenever I've gone in the past, it's always been hugely powerful just to see that many people. You really feel not alone. It's a, it's a bummer, obviously, with the virus to have to do it in a virtual way. I didn't really see much of it myself. Did you see anything, Mary? Or? I, I didn't, but I have really fond memories of um, yeah. uh, being present and uh, I should say not fond, powerful memories of being present. We, we've taken our kids to the March for Life before, and I have this little picture that I always in the month of January put on my social media profiles of my son Joseph holding a sign, and he's just this cute little boy, this three-year-old, with a sign that says, you know, human dignity for all humans. And it, I think 
when children are present or um, we have these discussions with our kids to make sure that they understand that life has dignity just as is, um, it can be a really important and powerful thing. But this year did feel a little different to me, but all things feel a little different with the virtual reality of things. So I can't, I can't think of anything specific um, that I engaged in this year beyond prayer. And we did pray uh-huh. in our family. And I know a lot of churches offer different prayer as well right. and rosaries and things like that. So as unfortunate as we find find the, this fact that we couldn't be together, back I put my spiritual director hat on. We need to see the the grace in that. Mm-hmm. God is behind the movement to protect human life. Yeah. And if He permitted us to have to do this virtually this year. Uh, he can bring good out of that if we entrust yep. it to him. I love that you always remind us of that. Anytime I start to to cross too closely to despair about how things have changed, you remind <laughs> us that God is God is a moving in uh, even in the way that things have shifted. If I could uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, pro life uh, experience and in being together to witness. Yeah. I think I've told you before, one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had was being on the, the Walk for Life on the West Coast in uh, mm-hmm. San Francisco, uh, the first year especially that we did that. Uh, we just startled uh, the populace. They didn't believe there were such people in, uh, <laughs> in the Bay Area. In California. And, uh, I think it was really yeah. very, very important. Right. And to be with people too, I think that, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a good reminder of how important this is to so many of us, um, and that also a, a sign of hope. Like we haven't given up in the struggle to make sure that innocent life is protected, because sometimes it can seem like a losing battle. I think, especially in our legal system, but there's many of us that want to be able to be sure that human dignity is protected in its most innocent form. If I just can say too, because our our reality has shifted with the March for Life this year, what are other things that we can do um, for the pro-life issue, for pro-life causes? What can we do as individuals? And maybe what can and does the church do? Because I know Michigan does a bunch of different things. What are things that you have seen that are really effective? Well, I think uh, grassroots organizations uh, being engaged is very important. I mean, prayer and fasting, obviously, very significant. I think like-minded people getting together and uh, discerning what they might be able to do as a, as a small group and where they could put their energy. Uh, I think it's very important to try and make the pro-life cause uh, a bipartisan reality. Uh, both parties, we need to have uh, politicians in both parties who are pro-life. That's very important to protect the integrity of the movement. Archbishop, regarding this topic of the dignity of a human life in general, is there anything else that you you just feel you'd like to add? Simply that this is God's cause, and we need to pursue it in God's way, which is a, a way of peace uh, and a way of confidence, and and that uh, Jesus is risen from the dead, and. Uh, to borrow the anthem from uh, the civil rights movement, we shall overcome. Mm-hmm. Well, God will overcome. 
So each month, we get an opportunity, Archbishop Vigneron, to ask you questions from the faithful. We ask the faithful that if they have any questions, they can send them in to eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org. If you'd like your question answered, please go ahead and email us with your name and your parish and, of course, your question. So our first question, Archbishop Vigneron, is from Pam from Our Lady of Good Counsel. She asks... The gospel tells us Jesus said it is finished just before he died on the cross. What does this mean? This is a most powerful question because uh, it leads us to see that nothing Jesus says is simple. Uh, Jesus is a true man and he speaks true words, many of them ordinary but as ordinary, they're always supercharged with extraordinary meaning because it's God talking uh, in this human voice. So it is finished is a most powerful expression. Um, it's interesting, this comes from a parishioner at Our, Our Lady of Good Counsel where they prominently display another last word, uh, I thirst. So it's finished. Uh, the simple meaning is uh, I'm dying. It's done. Uh, but it, uh, the more profound meaning is uh, what began with, uh, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and her seed. Mm -hmm. uh, what God began the very hour after the fall has now been brought to consummation. Everything that God intended with Abraham, Moses, the prophets, it has all been brought to its consummation here in, in my uh, self-oblation. Mm. So uh, it's finished, and in some sense it's started. And uh, this is a complement to the other saying, I thirst, because Jesus now thirsts after he has finished the work of redemption, uh, uh, atonement, I should say, uh, now he thirsts for people to come and accept that atonement and to, to come to him as disciples. As he says in another place, when I am lifted up from the world, I will draw all things to myself. So this whole new, it, it's not a really, to say a new chapter is to say too little. It's a, a, a new beginning of creation. The world has started over. The old creation is finished, and the new creation has begun. What a uh, fantastic reflection as we enter into the Lenten season and really contemplate the bigger picture of what we're remembering and praying with during this season, and particularly during Holy Week and on Good Friday. Um, that, that from Genesis, that, that completion of that enmity uh, being erased by God, right? Like that he, he has spoken. Right. The, the war has been won. Yeah. Now, there's some battles sure. still to be fought. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but the war is finished. Yeah, yeah. I like that you reminded us too that every everything that Christ says is so loaded. You know, it's obviously got that human dimension, but that divine dimension to it. And man, what a question to start us off, huh? So here's here's a here's question number two. <laughs> it's good two. for Lent, though. Like that's a no, good. It's great. a good. It's yeah. a good moment. Well, to you know, it, that. it it 
just to tie it into uh, our effort to cooperate with our Holy Father about the, the Sunday of the Word of God, yeah. this is one of the reasons that uh, you can never exhaust uh, one's reflection on the sacred scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it, it means what it says, <clears throat> but what it says is so much more yeah. than what it says. Well, well, Mary Beth, so for question two here, Mary Beth from OLGC as well, um, she says, thank you for they all of you. They got a lot do. of questions out They do, very I holy people. So. Yeah, I know, like look it. at that. She says, uh, thank you for all you've been doing for the Archdiocese of Detroit. I grew up attending communal penance services, um, as well as going to private confession, and it was always a good experience and reflections for healing. Why did the Catholic Church stop the practice of gathering as a parish family for communal penance? Well, we haven't stopped it. Uh, what we have stopped is uh, concluding the communal penance service with general absolution. That was not appropriate uh, for the circumstances here in this archdiocese. But uh, communal penance services are still a very legitimate experience in the life of the church. Now, perhaps some priests have... Uh, uh, cut back on them in order to provide more time for uh, individual confession. But uh, they both have a great validity and are moments of grace. The uh, penance service uh, that uh, concludes with the opportunity for particular confession. Uh, you can have a, a penance service without an opportunity for reconciliation or the individual uh, confession without a penance service. They're all valid ways to be touched by the Lord's gift of healing. You know, it's funny, Archbishop, growing up uh, where I did on the East Coast, I never had experienced any communal penance service as ever. It was the first time I experienced it was when I moved here to Detroit. And uh, and I experienced the type that were valid that you mentioned, where you, you pray together, you have uh, you know common readings, and then you... Um, uh, are contrite together, and then everyone goes individually to separate priests around the church for confession. And I got to say, I found it really powerful to do a communal version of that. And, uh, you know, every week we come to Mass and we acknowledge our, our sinfulness, that we're sinners, but there's there's a special palpableness there at that moment, because it's kind of like, no, we're sinners, and actually we're going to go do something about it and go to confession right now in this moment as a community of people. Uh, it was really cool. I thought that was really awesome. So... I wonder if that's not some of the same dynamic that operates in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, mm. where uh, there's a realization that we need one another to stay on the path together. Mm. And I'm not in this alone, that God gives uh, all of us to each of us in order to, uh, to move forward. Well, our final question today comes from Vicki at Corpus Christi Parish in Detroit. What is one of your favorite non-theological books and why? I think we've asked you this before, but we'll see if you have a new answer because you asked us to ask a couple times because you have so many good books that you've read. So what's your favorite non-theological book? Well, I don't why? know if I've said this before, but it's okay. uh, uh, William Makepeace Thackeray's uh, Vanity Fair, which makes me laugh out loud when I read it. <laughs> It's a, it's a tremendous uh, satire about human foibles. Oh, really? Yeah. And the auxiliary bishops here in Detroit know of my love of it so much that they gave me a first edition one time for Christmas. <gasps> Look at that. Isn't that wow. special? That's awesome. Well, Archbishop, I wanted to ask before we conclude today, did you have any special prayer intentions that uh, we might be able to pray for you for? 
I think uh, this is the year of St. Joseph. Uh, I know many, many of the listeners are making the novena to St. Joseph for the consecration. I would ask uh, when people are praying to St. Joseph, asking his intercession, if they'd uh, put in a word for me that St. Joseph mm. obtained from God the Father, the, uh, the graces I need to be a good spiritual father in the archdiocese. We'll definitely do that. Absolutely. And Archbishop, if you wouldn't mind, would you uh, mind closing us with a prayer and a blessing? No, happy to do that. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for all of your many good gifts. We thank you for the, the graces you send that when we first taste them don't always seem like graces, but we know they come from your hand and they're an opportunity to serve you. Help us always to be your devoted sons and daughters and to realize that our first purpose in life is to give you glory and to receive your love and return it uh, with generosity. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Archbishop. You're very welcome. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like Detroit Stories, a new podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find it on your favorite podcast app.